0: Watch podcast. I'm Aaron Berger, a Nebraska Extension beef educator. For today's Beef Watch podcast, we will be taking a break from our usual format of discussing Beef Watch newsletter articles. Today's podcast is a producer's perspective, and I have the privilege of being joined by Russ Anderson, who's a rancher from the Sand Hills of Nebraska near Hyannis. Thanks for joining me today, Russ. Thank you. So, Russ, the focus of our discussion is going to be primarily around the changes you made in your operation in terms of calving date and, and the ripple effects and how that's affected your production system as a whole. But before we dive into that, share with us a little more about yourself, your family, and the history of the operation there.
1: Okay. I um, grew up in Anselmo, Nebraska, graduated from Anselmo, Myrna, and went to college at Shadron. And Wanted to get into ranching, but there was nowhere around Anselmo that I felt like would, was what I wanted. I could fit in. You know, I didn't see very many opportunities. So, uh, I, uh, went to work for, uh, Duncan Aviation for six months out of college to put my degree to work and thinking I could make a fortune in the aviation business and buy my own ranch. But after six months, I, that wasn't going to work out. So I, Came back to Aunt Solomon was a hired man for uh, six months, and then I had an opportunity to move up onto a ranch north of Hyannis, and so we took that and worked up there for two years for the Salts Ranch, and then uh, it sold, and so I worked for a minor ranch south of Hyannis for another, well, about 10 months, and then we started the, uh fencing business thinking that uh, we'd have a little more flexibility to look around. I was wanting to be a manager or at least manage a ranch. And so we started the fencing business and did that for uh, the first full year. And then we added a pay contract and we did mow no contracts up in this area for three years, just to get out of the heat of the summer. And all during that time, I, anytime I heard of an opportunity or I thought of an opportunity, um, I would get on the phone and I had, a lot of no's you know no we've it's taken care of or we're going a different direction or the ranch is selling and I had turned down a couple opportunities to manage it wasn't we felt like it would not be a good fit and then uh, the ranch that we're on currently Don clay uh, he uh, was the owner operator and so we uh, asked if there would be an opportunity for us to work with him and he said I I beat him to the punch. He said he was going to call me in a few days. So I'd worked with him a little bit, day working around cattle work and being, helping to some neighbors. So we knew each other a little bit, We decided we'd give it a six months trial and error. I wouldn't, uh, I still had my mo contract and I would fulfill that for the summer. And my wife would help him put up the hay here. That's that first summer. And then, uh, when we got that done, I would be full-time, here and uh i kept the fencing business alive as long as the work here at the ranch was being taken care of i could go and do a fence job and that uh it worked out uh i would my contracts i would tell them you know this was the deal and i could i'll fit you in as i can and and that lightened the load up here for for the ranch as far as i just paid me a day wage and and that got us through, and then at, at the end of that year, we decided that Don and I could work together, that we should go ahead, and uh, he f- started it on a partnership, and we had 30 cows at the time, and he, uh, the ranch bought them from us, and, oh, some equipment, not all of our hay equipment. I sold what we didn't need, and kept a few things, and the ranch bought the rest, and and we use that as all equity to buy in on shares on uh ranch. And the business is called Bonnefield Cattle Company. And it was started back in 1945 with Don's dad and then Bob Bonifield And he sold Mr. Clay, sold Bernard, um, what was it? He sold him the cows and equipment. And then he kept all the real estate and passed that down to his niece. who so he, want, he wanted to keep the real estate in a family and he didn't have any sons or daughters, so he gave it to his niece, and then she passed it down to her daughter, and that's who we currently are uh, leasing from, and she lives in Houston, Texas, and we've got a really long-term lease. It's kind of unheard of as far as the length of it. It's 45 years. We've uh, got along really good with them, and we, our lease is cheap, Per acre, as far as paying them, but we pay all expenses. If we want to do anything, we it's out of our pocket. We even pay the land taxes. I think it it still averages out probably about the average county average as far as leases go, but ours is just a little set up a little different. And I like it just for the fact that if we want to do some improvements or uh, change something, we don't have to keep calling the landlord asking them to kick in some money or to to do anything. And as long as it doesn't get really wild or cost a lot that we go ahead and do it. If it's in the contract that if we're gonna have huge changes or do something to the land, say like turn it into farm ground or something, we would have to get an okay from them. But the way it's running I don't I don't ever see us ever doing that. So it's a, it's worked out really well, like say Bob Bonifield, he came up with the idea back in, I think it was 1945, and Bernard Clay, they got along, and everything's worked just right, and the Bonifield Cattle Company is what it was called back then, and we just can still on the checks today, and it's set up in shares. If you want more control or more shares, you just gotta, you gotta buy in more, so I like that as far as you gotta work for it, then you can kind of make it work that way, you know, you're not gonna Nothing's handed to you around here. You've got to earn it. And that's just fine by me. So it's it's worked really well.
0: I think you've got a pretty unique situation there. There's not many, many operations I'm aware of that function in that way, but it seems like separating the land ownership from the cattle ownership and the management has been a, in your scenario, a pretty good long-term working relationship. I
1: don't know of any, I've never heard of any set up this way. And that's what I've offered other people that, to look at, you know, not only our our contract with the landowner, as far as how that's set up, but even our, our partnership's unique as far as it's set up in shares, and when they set it up, we uh one thing I think is unique is we Bonnefield cattle companies never had an operating note. It's always operated on cash, and at the end of our fiscal year, we uh forecast all of our monetary needs or you know what we think we're going to need to operate on one year of cash. And then uh, anything that's left over in the checkbook gets split up. If you've got 50% of the shares, you get 50% of what's left over. And then it's divided up that way. And right now there's three of us in it, my wife and I and two other partners. And we just, we split it up. We split it up with uh, how many, the percentage of it. It's set up as whoever owns the most shares, if something would happen, has final say. So if people get... Uh, fighting and bickering or somebody wants out or wants in or you know wants out you can't it's I guess to to buy in is hard you know somebody can't just come along and buy in and take over it makes it so it's really hard to split it up let's put it that way so it's yeah it's a unique situation and I've I don't I've never seen anything any better.
0: Let's transition a little bit and talk about some changes you've made since you've been part of the operation there and one of those changes is that you've made some changes to your calving time and also to the management of that evolves with that, so share with our listeners just a little more about kind of the operation of the ranch, what was in place when you came, and then some of the changes you made specifically around calving time and and what's taken place with that.
1: When we first got here we the the place ran in two different bunches. I had three hundred and twenty cows I would run year round on this area, and uh, Don had about, oh, 110 to 130, depending on the year, over on his area, and he, he had about 2,000 acres that he run them on, and I had about 50, what, 5,700, I think, over here, approximately. We were calving about the, first calves were about the 1st of March, so that was, we get a few early, so I, mean, I, I think our due date was around the 10th. And we would start feeding hay around the middle of December, usually whether they need it or not. We just we had the hay, and that's kind of when we started. And we'd feed hay from the middle of December until about the first of May, sometimes a little after, if the weather required it. Oh, we used Charley bulls on this end, and then we Angus bulls on the others, and everything was terminal. The Angus calves. We had a deal with the Keneally's that we sent all the calves back to them and uh, then that price was set. It was uh, accordance with what our steer calves, the Charley steer calves off of this end, sold over here and everything was marketed generally about the first of, we'd start looking for buyers about the first of October and, and try to have them sold by the middle of October. We had a somewhere around in there and then they would ship them all out about the first week of uh, November or middle of November we wanted them gone and uh, then we'd kind of do our pregging and sell the opens and start buying back we'd buy back uh, bred cows and start over go again the next year and uh, one year we were started feeding hay and we had grass left over but we'd had the hay so we started feeding it and it was i think sometime it was a warm some warm days in january i kind of was sitting in the tractor feeding hay and you know i just started figuring up what it was costing us to feed hay and at that time hay was worth 60 bucks a ton and i figured at that time running the tractor and bale feeder and my time for what I could get, you know, fixing fence or doing something else, you know, was costing us 75 an hour. So every other day was costing us another calf just in tractor and, or, you know, equipment and feed. And I don't even know if I counted in the fuel cost. That was kind of an eye opener of, okay, you know, every other day you just sold another calf for the money you kept and that's money you don't have to pay taxes on which adds a little more to it. And then we've had some springs, some of them March blizzards and even late March and early April blizzards. So I just started, I didn't change it all at once because I was still working with Don and he kind of, I just kind of went out at it slow, you know, let's, what do you think about holding the bulls out for another five days or a week? And just to get away from the feeding hay and the death loss that, that we were incurring because our most of our bad storms come out of the Northeast and we just short of little places, we don't have very much to get out of That We just can't get away from it. Our hills aren't very good for it in this area. We were just taking a pretty good hit and uh, I wanted to kind of get away from that. That's, I finally decided I, I could keep the calves alive a lot better inside the cow than I was outside the cow. So I started backing it up and uh i pushed our cows pretty hard as far as their body condition scores were probably getting down the worst ones were probably down in the fours there in part of the winter just for the fact i was taking them and i was i pushed them trying to build up some hay reserves thinking that if we weren't uh, putting up as much hay if we weren't going to feed as much we wouldn't need as much and so that trying to get just get away from another cost it felt like the one year i what was left of our shares, a lot of it went to the, to the implement dealerships as far as equipment and repairs and just the wear and tear on everything. I tried to make the cows work for more of it than uh, instead of us working for them, giving it to them. So I just started backing off thinking that uh instead of turning the bulls in the 1st of June, if we turned them in the 20th of June or the 1st of July or even later like we are now. Last year it was the 14th of July, that a cow can look pretty rough. Like this year, I, we have a lot of cows that, and I've seen them on other places that you just couldn't hardly feed them enough through them. February was so cold, and March that storms hit them, and even the blizzards there in early April just took a lot out of them. But I've got another almost 40 days of good green grass and they're already looking a lot better. I've got cows that you wouldn't even know it was the same bunch that, you know, we the grass is flushing and it just flushes them and they're losing that old rough hair and they're slicking off and putting on fat and they're the calves. They're not, uh, they're on the ground right now. They're not taking so much milk that the cow can kick that over into building up her fat stores you know, and she's gaining body condition and getting looking good. that was, that was one of the arguments that Don had for March, Kevin. He said he wanted that calf big enough that when the grass flush came and she was milking at peak, he wanted that calf big enough to take it all. But I guess my argument is you had a big calf, but we were also pumping a lot of money into them as far as labor and equipment and feed. That's, that's what uh, I think a lot of people get caught up on was, you know they look at that they need a big calf, and you, yeah, I would like a big calf, but it's the dollar kept, not the you know that you can earn a million, but if you if you can only keep a little bit of that, it doesn't really matter. you know it it's the money you keep in your wallet at the year end instead of the money you've you've made. I think some people get lost on that just because you've got a great big calf doesn't mean you're profitable, and it changed a lot. we had to change our marketing, and that's provided. Some unique challenges, but also some opportunities too. That we've, we're keeping our all of our replacement heifers, and so we get to, it gives us a little better look at the cows. their best cows now we can keep our calves out of, and run them instead of sending it to, down the road to somebody else. It always bothered me that I'd see a really great cow that had a big charlotte calf or heifer. And so that was just a terminal, you know, they were gone. You didn't get to keep any of the really good genetics.
0: So in your transition from the early March to basically mid-April calving system, you also changed your genetic program as well? Yes. Yeah.
1: I look for as much maternal traits as I can, as far as, you know, the low milk and better, you know, just survivability, doability, I guess, better mothering instincts. If I can buy a bull out of a cow that's had 10 calves, that, that's, I think, is a home run. Last couple of years, I've kind of played with it as any cow that's at least 10 years old and is, looks good and is always calved in the first cycle. I'm starting to keep them, keep her bull calves back. And we've got, I think we've got six this year, which isn't very many. And I don't know if we may not keep half of them. We may not keep any of them. We may keep all of them. Just the fact that one of the biggest uh, expenses a ranch has is, you know, replacing females. If you can get your cows, your average age to go from five to eight, how much more profitable you would be. That's what we're trying for anyway.
0: Talk a little about your heifer development and how marketing has changed. You mentioned early on in the conversation that you were terminal and Basically, all the calves left the ranch in early to mid November buying in replacements. Now you're keeping replacement heifers and and developing them and then also marketing calves differently. What does that look like for you now?
1: I like it for the fact that, you know, before, if the market was up, hey, it was great. You were, you sold all the calves were sold and the coal cows were all sold. So you were, you hit one market. And if it was up, it was great. If it was down, well, that, you're just out of luck and now with uh keeping our all of our heifers as replacements oh y'all you're going to have some cutoff steers that just had bad mothers that aren't going to go on a truck those get thrown in with the replacement heifers and we just we rough them through the winter basically taking range for as long as i can until the weather dictates that we've got to start feeding some hay like this year and uh we'll run those We'll wean the uh, replacements with the bred heifers, and we kind of let the bred heifers act as babysitters up until you know about the first uh first week of April when the the bred heifers are getting close to cabin And we'll pull them out by then. The replacements they're they're all in good shape. They're you know they're not going to spook or run through fences or they kind of got it figured out of what. The, what's going on. I don't look for every replacement to get bred. I try to push them as hard as I can. And the theory on that is if I have to push my replacements to get bred, I will probably have to push them the rest of their lives to get bred. And I would like to get all of that. I would like to get most of it, if not all of it, out that first year. If you're, if the heifer can't grow and when she hits green grass, start flushing and be ready to get pregnant, either AI or bull bred or however you're going to do it, she needs to go down the road. My heifers looked pretty rough. Last year, we had, was the worst year we've ever had. We only had 30% bred, probably bad winter. And I made some management decisions that I thought the grass was growing and we had them in some pastures that they had plenty of feed, but the quality wasn't what it should have been. And it cost us That way, we didn't have very many, but we also made money on the side that we didn't have much, we didn't have anything in them, really. And the ones that did get bred should be good cows the rest of their lives, because they roughed it pretty hard through that, but they still come up pregnant. And the ones that didn't went down the road, and we made money on them. So it was kind of hard to take. We've generally, before that, we've been in around 70 to 80 percent bred, which I thought There's a lot of years I couldn't I was surprised that it was that good just for the fact that how we roughed them through and was real pleased with it. But uh, last year it it, you know, you push it hard enough and it finally catches up to you at some point and it did, but monetarily, you know, it was we had a we had a big check to cash there when we sold all the open heifers at the end of the summer. So that's that was a good problem to have.
0: Talk a little bit about what happens then once you get those heifers pregnant, how do you manage those and then uh, those first calf heifers coming back, getting bred with their next calf, uh, how how do you see breed up on those, and, and what do you do with management there? Okay, once
1: we get them pregnant, well they're just out, oh, they get a salt mineral. They are, um, And I don't, uh, not until the grass starts turning, you know, you get a freeze, and the grass starts turning, and then we'll start caking them. We'll bring them over, usually right towards about a week before we start weaning the heifers, which is around the 1st of November, we'll bring the bread heifers and run them in there with all the heifer pairs and uh, let them kind of get accustomed to each other and then when we wean them we just throw the calves and the bread heifers on one side of a fence and the cows on the other and most years the cows have a hard time harder time weaning than the calves do just for the fact that the the bread heifers they walk away or out and grazing and the calves they They'll just trail off with the bred heifers and leave the cows. After about two days, you just keep pushing them away and the, he- the heifers, they kind of just follow them bred heifers around the bred heifers. They kind of act as surrogates and off they go. And we've got along really good that way. Is, you know, I think they do, they wean easier. The sickness is down and we don't have any problems with fences or, you know, they just, the we had a dog one time that got out and started chasing the calves. And uh, all the heifer calves took off running, and the bred heifers, they didn't run very far at all, and they turned them faced up. And the dog stopped, he didn't know what to do. And then all the heifer calves, they turned them faced up too. They just, that was just a learned technique. And that, that proved to me right there that, you know, they're not near as flighty and they gain better. And it helped a lot that way.
0: When you're looking at the breed up that happens, then these heifers calf for the first time, and then they're They're getting pregnant then to calve with the second calf. What's your breed up there? Because those those heifers are breeding, you know, still growing themselves, breeding then in that uh, early to mid-July and into August when your forage quality tends to be declining. What do you see for pregnancy rates on that set of cows?
1: Well, it used to be about 50%, of course, and that's when we would dump the, after we'd brand the calves, we would throw the heifer pairs right in with the cold cows and it, it made it easy just because you only had one bunch to, to uh, manage or take care of. But yeah, it was about 50%. So the last few years we've cut them off and we put them down. It's kind of a high meadow and we, hmm. I put them down there by themselves and maybe some old cold cows that got a calf with them that you know, you're going to sell in the fall. We put them down on a high meadow and let them run for about 30 days. And, uh, and then I, try to get them back over with a big bunch, and that helps just kind of manage the grass a little better, and our, instead of 50%, we're, well, close to 90 now, and and now our, we see our head on our, our third, coming to third, their third calf, and it's, but it's still a little better. It gives them another year of growth, and they're not getting pushed around quite as bad, and, but I like to, I like to push them. I don't know if I'll ever, some people even take, First and second calf pairs and run them by themselves, but where we have our fall program, I like to push them cows a little bit just for the fact I'm pushing for fertility. Well, I want them to be able to go out and graze and breed back and raise a calf. And if they don't, you know, I'm I've got another avenue with the fall calving program. I can get one more calf and it picks up a lot of that stuff. But it's hard to get out of that some of that fertility stuff or it takes several years to kind of get your fertility built up, especially you got to watch the animals that you're buying. And you know, that it's I'm still struggling with some of that, that trying to trying to come up. That's kind of why we started keeping our own bull cows is thinking maybe we can raise as good as what we're buying just for the fact that they're in our, I guess, habitat or, you know, the old cows have already, they've come through the, our whole program for several years and whatever genetics is in there, that's what uh, obviously is what is making us money
0: talk a little about your fall program when did you start your fall calving cows why did you do that how does it complement your whole production system i started our
1: fall program just with i uh, was getting i was i wasn't satisfied with the market we were pushing our open cows into at that time the market flooded with open cows so it was a buyer's market and uh at that time, we had a big old 200 acres of swamp ground that was it was anywhere from a, below average meadow. It was a wet meadow and it had bulrushes and cattails and just a lot of stuff that you couldn't you couldn't get out on. We couldn't harvest it and early in the year when cattails were growing. That stuff is growing. Cows will I've seen them eat them out in holes. You know. That, well, my theory was well, let's breed those open cows because we're not getting a lot. We can just run them out there in that stuff that you know is a a cow a dry cow doesn't you're not trying to put weight on her you're just you need her to run her through the summer and I thought that was we could get three four months of free grazing or I considered free or you know because it was stuff that we weren't using we weren't utilizing and so that's why we started and then to get just to get to make it pay some and and it gives us an avenue of okay as hard as I am on my Replacements and heifers, and where I'm pushing them cows, maybe that would give us we could we'd get a little bit of that back, or maybe I'm pushing them cows too hard that all right they can go over into the fall herd, and if they stay there because they they can they'll survive there, and we would still be able to produce calves for us. That was that was a theory behind it, and the reason we started doing it. And even then, you run through the fall herd, we preg, and now you're selling now in this time of year, which is generally a better better market for cold cows or dry you know, than in late fall.
0: When you get an open cow that comes out of your spring herd and she rolls to your fall, what do you see typically happen there? Do they stay there for a while or do they tend to roll through that as well? It's hit and miss. You know, that's
1: they they give us a couple calves generally. Our pregnancy rate, like what the first year as they come out with with no calf is really pretty good it's 80 90% but our fall if the the cow has a calf on her and going in there now that drops down to 60 and you know i used to be this kind of disappointed that it's not better but you know there's there's a reason that they're in the fall herd, you know, so I just, I quit paying any attention to it. Just, you know, if you start, if you start feeding everything enough to get them all bred, you're probably going backwards. You know, there's, that's one of the reasons we started trying to breed as many heifers as we could just for the fact that there's a, there's a lot of stuff that you can't, you can't look for as far as like EPDs or, you know, for fertility, you know, or, if something happens, you know, something stuff that you can't see, Mother Nature does. I mean, if 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 she can't breed up, you know, and or if she she can do it dry, but she can't with a calf on her, then she needs to go. And I'm giving her one chance to prove me wrong. But there's a reason that they come up. She was open the first time, and I give her one more chance on the fall herd. And after that, they go to town. We don't keep anything out of and like the. The fall calves, they're all terminal. They will sell them here. Usually it's the first part of June. This year we're, we got a little more grass, so we're going to run them. We'll probably run them till the latter part of June and we'll pelvic measure the heifers and anything that falls out or is below. It's not acceptable. We will, we'll sell them as grass calves and before we kind of, we kind of make our final selection for AI and then.
0: So that's on the, your selection on AI for, you're talking about, that's on your heifer calves that are spring born prior to breeding those for the spring calving season, correct?
1: Yes, yep. It's kind of helped with our, you know, running our, our fall calves fit in. There's some, some of them are pretty growthy and it, it makes kind of, it makes, it helps our numbers with the, all of the, cutoffs of our spring herd from the year before we run them all winter long and they hit this grass flush up and we've had some pretty poor calves that you know they you never you you kind of want to hide them in the back corner so nobody sees them but they hit 45 days of green grass and they look like a pretty good calf and it it's a lot more marketable calf let's put it that way and it, it adds to our numbers I've, I've noticed over the years if you can sell load lots it helps on your price.
0: So, obviously, the winter's been pretty challenging in Nebraska and to the north of us as well. For folks that are thinking about making a change in their calving season, what are some things that you'd encourage them to think through? And if you were to go back and do it again, would you do anything different? You
1: kind of go a trial and error. And, you know, my ranch is different than all of my neighbor's ranches a management and how it's set up and you know, the forage availability and where you go. But I would, some people rip the Band-Aid off and sell the cows or they, you know, and buy some or they they go from first of March till the middle of April in one year. And I would, if I was to say, I would say do it slow because in the middle of all of that, we went from a our summer range was two pasture rotation. And we've went from two pasture, you know, move them once during the summer to I'm moving them once a week through all the pastures. And if the conditions are right, I'll graze the meadows in early spring or late summer, you know, however Mother Nature permits me. But that was a lot of stuff to throw at your cows and yourself. There's just so many things that you don't, you can't foresee when you make a huge management change. For that, your cows aren't used to that, you're not used to that, your family's not used to that. it opens up you know it's some unique opportunities and some you know unique challenges so I would say if you're gonna go through everything that we did is go slow. that's a cow that's used to being bred the first of June now it's the middle of July. that changes a lot and during the middle of all of this that we did, we've dropped our cow size down, we've sold. The one year we sold two loads of cows that averaged 1500 pounds. Just looking at the, you know, when we were weaning 550 pound calves, the calves looked fine, but you know, they were killing us. You know, that's an only about a third efficiency was only about a third. So we've dropped our cow size down, but we got, we got a lot more of them. You know, we can run more cows and our weaning weights went down. It dropped down to about, we're around 430 pounds now is what we ship out our steer calves, but they're a lot younger too they're you know now our instead of our average age being you know the 20th of march now it's you know we we our average age it's calving wise was the 20th of march and we'd ship the middle of november now we're you know we're at the first of may and and we're shipping the first of november instead of latter part or sometimes even the middle of october and so that lightens up. We can run more cows because those. You take a 500-pound calf out last month. They're eating. They're eating a lot of grass. So I. I would say if somebody was going to do it, it would is go slow and and uh, just for the fact that there's going to be some challenges that you can't forecast that are going to come up. That it's better to do it slowly and ease into it. Is if you jump clear in and you you uh it might it, if you can stand the hit financially i guess you can do it but you better be able to stand the hit financially cuz you're going to make mistakes and there's no way around it there's just stuff that comes up that you can't mother nature or markets or something's going to hit you that you can't foresee and if you go slow it it just softens the blow a little but uh to go back i would never go back you know, we used to put up 1400 bales and the last few years we've only put up four to 500. This year we, I'd like to put up more just for the fact we used up a lot of reserves. This winter we fed more hay than I have for several years with the hard winter and we even bought a little hay, but I'd like to get our reserves built back up and just to, just for, you know, you, the margin of error when you do all this just shrinks and, but if you can cut some corners in there, it's worth it financially. I, and I would say if, when you start reaping those words, just put it in a bank because you're, you're, uh, especially if you're going at it kind of blind or, you know, trying it, for, you're the first generation that's backed it off. There's going to be some stuff that's going to hit you and just don't get yourself in a bind financially and you'll be fine.
0: Well, I've taken quite a bit of your time, Russ, anything else you'd like to add as we point towards wrapping this up?
1: Um, no, I would say just try to do what's best for you and don't look a, it's it's hard to do, but you look across at the neighbors and you see their big calves and everything's fancy and all of that. But that doesn't mean they're your place. I would say just concentrate on your own operation and what works for you, and don't worry about what's going on around you. And uh, that's that's kind of the hard thing to do is you're gonna on this type of deal because you know that's what your market, your money's coming in is from them calves, and your cows are gonna look a little rougher in the spring and not as pretty, and your calves aren't gonna be as big, but You'll, you're going to have more money in the bank, and that's something that nobody sees but you, and that's where it counts. So you're in this branching should be a business, and the more cash or collateral you can build up, the better you're going to be. That's about all
0: I would say. Well, I really appreciate your time. Thanks for joining me today, Russ. All right. Thank you, Aaron. For more information on evaluating calving date, I'd encourage you to visit the beef.unl.edu website. At the website, we've got a number of resources that compare different catting dates and some more research studies on this topic.